There's an old adage that you may be familiar with. It goes, united we stand, divided we fall. But if you're like me, you may not know that this phrase comes from one of Aesop's fables. It's a story about four bulls and a lion. And this lion continuously tries to attack the four bulls. But every time he attacks, they defend themselves. And the way they defend themselves is by going back to back in a circle. So that any way the lion approaches them, he is met by a wall of horns. But the lion doesn't give up. The lion plots. And so what he does is he sows dissension between the bulls. And so some of the bulls, they become jealous of one another. They begin to resent each other. And as a result, they each decide to graze in their own corner of the field. And so as you might expect, this allows the lion to pick them off one by one. And thus the moral of this story is united we stand and divided we fall. Now this phrase may be attributed to Aesop, but the principle is found over and over in Scripture. Mark 3.25 says, And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And that's the principle that I want to get at this morning, that we, the church, are a house. And the house needs to be united in order to stand. Because if it is divided, it will fall. And it's this idea that Paul addresses in the, first, in the book of 1 Corinthians. You see, the church of Corinth had a lot of problems. And one of those problems was division. There was a growing divide happening within the church. There were dividing factions growing within this congregation. And that threatened the unity of the church. And this is a problem that is not unique to Corinth. It is one that is easily ha happens in every church, in any church. And so this morning, I want to look at Paul's address to Corinth in order to, to see how he handles it. To see how he handles a, this growing divide amongst the Corinthians so that we can be on guard against division within our own church. So let's turn to our passage this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 12 to 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 26. And in our passage this morning, Paul will teach us three truths that combat division in the church. Three truths that combat division in the church. The first truth, united we stand in verses 12 to 13. And then the second truth is divided we fall in verses 14 to 25. And then I'm going to add a third truth to our adage, together we live. And we'll see that in verse 26. So those are our three truths that Paul will teach us that combat division in the church. So let's consider our first truth. United we stand. We see that in verses 12 to 13. Let's read that. 
For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so I know we're jumping straight into the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians. So I want to remind you of some of the context of this book. As I said before, Paul writes this in order to address divides in the church. And here he writes this letter to address practical questions that are dividing the church. And some of those topics, some of those questions revolve around the topics of marriage, Christian liberty, cult of personality, the resurrection, and the spiritual gifts. And it's that last one, the spiritual gifts, that we will focus on this morning. Now, what's the problem with the spiritual gifts? For the Corinthians, the problem was they were regarding the spiritual gifts as one better than the other. They were giving more glory and honor to the signed gifts. In other words, they were putting an emphasis on the showy gifts. And those that had the showy gifts, they were putting up on a pedestal. But those with the background gifts were neglected. The signed gifts were the ones that were more public and prestigious. They were the gift of healing, of miracles, of prophecy, of teaching, and of tongues. These were the ones that they regarded as being more prominent, better. And the seemingly lesser gifts were the gifts of administration, helping, giving, and interpretation of the tongues. Now, before I go on, let me just note two things. The gifts I mentioned, uh, it's not an exhaustive list. And there's not an exhaustive list here in 1 Corinthians. Because 1 Corinthians isn't the only place where they're given, we're given a list of the spiritual gifts. If you want to look at some of the other spiritual gifts, they're listed here in these passages. And you can read those for yourself uh, to get an idea of what other spiritual gifts there are in the Bible. That's the first note. The second note is, I'm not going to get into the question of whether or not the signed gifts are in effect today. And I'm not going to get into that question because that's not the point of our passage. The point of our passage is not to to deal with that. And so I'll leave that question for another time. But let's go back to Corinth. Let's go back to the Corinthians and their problem. They had a problem. They were ranking the spiritual gifts. They were ranking the spiritual gifts, and that was dividing the church. And so now Paul addresses the issue, telling them that if they're trying to figure out which gift is best, they've missed the whole point. Paul tells them, you're tempted to be divided because of these gifts, because you think one is better than the other, when in reality, you ought to be very much united. You must be the most united of all peoples. The church should be united as one. And so Paul says in verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And so Paul uses the analogy of the body, the human body, to teach them about the unity of the church. 
Now, we all have a general understanding of the human body. We all have a body, and we understand that our body is made up of many parts. These parts include limbs and organs and muscles and tendons and tissues and cells, etc. We have a lot of different types of body parts, but they make up one body. And so Paul's point is that the church is a body, and the body has many diverse groups of members, but it is only one body. And since you are one body, you are to be unified, working together on the same team. But the question is how? How did we, the church, become the same team? How do we become this one body? After all, Paul, we are different. We may be different races, ethnicities, nationalities. We may be different. We have different backgrounds, upbringings. We have different amounts of money and influence. We may be different in a lot of different ways. So what makes us a team? What makes us so united that, Paul, you would call us a body? And the answer, the answer is Christ. Paul says, so it is with Christ. Paul's point is that the gospel itself doesn't just make us friends. It doesn't just make us a part of the same club. The gospel makes us a part of Christ himself. It's as if to say, we are not Lego pieces that can attach and detach from a sculpture, but instead we are Lego pieces that are melted together into one glob of a sculpture. There is no separating yourself from Christ or each other. We are all now one. What happens at the point of true conversion for every person. When you believe the gospel, what happens? Well, Paul says here, what happens is that you are baptized into one spirit. Now, this is not talking about water baptism. This is talking about spiritual baptism. Water baptism comes later, comes right after you're saved. Water baptism is an outward declaration and a a demonstration of what has already happened internally, namely spiritual baptism. In water baptism, you're baptized by a human pastor. But who baptizes you in spiritual baptism? Who is the baptizer? It's Jesus. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you believe the gospel, Jesus baptizes you into the Holy Spirit, and thus you become part of one body, Christ's body. The church is not a building. It's not a club of people who have common interests. It's a group of people who are individually so united to Jesus that that is what unites them together. As one. As some would say, Christianity is not just a religion, it's a relationship. But I would argue that Paul takes it further and says here it's not just a relationship, it's a oneness with Jesus Himself. And what do I mean by oneness? It means that Christ is not just with 
his church, that he is the church, and the church is he. Jesus himself prayed for this oneness in John chapter 7, verse 20. This is Jesus praying to the Father. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is the high priestly prayer, and he is praying for all believers, current and future. Jesus is praying for the church, and what does he pray for? That the church would be as one as he and the Father are one. That the church would be unified, not just to each other, but to Jesus and to the Father. He goes on in John chapter, in John chapter 17, verse 22. Jesus prays that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Paul is just reminding these Corinthians what Jesus prayed for, that you be united. The church must be united, must have this oneness to Jesus, and that is what brings us together as a body, as one. As one elder reminded me this week, the church is not about what you do, it's about who you love. And that love is for Jesus, and the byproduct of oneness with Jesus is oneness with each other. We are baptized by Jesus in the Holy Spirit, and that makes us one. As a church, one. So first, Paul combats their division with the truth. The truth that they need to remember, the church is united, we stand. Then Paul moves to the second truth to combat their division. Divided, we fall, verses 14 to 25. Now, the Corinthian division takes the form of, of a coin with two faces. So in this divided, we fall section, we have a coin with two faces. The first face is self-pitying jealousy. We'll see that in verses 14 to 20. And the second face is self-aggrandizing pride in verses 21 to 25. So the first face is self-pitying jealousy, verses 14 to 20. And the second face is self-aggrandizing pride in verse Verses 21 to 25. And so this is how division often comes packaged. It comes packaged as one of these two faces. So let's look at the first face. A self-pitying jealousy in verses 14 to 20. Let's read that, verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should, uh, ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, and that would not make it any less part of the body. Paul continues his body analogy when he confronts this first self-pitying member. In this analogy, the members of the body, these body parts, are talking to each other. And the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not important, therefore I'm not a part of the body. The ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. But this is ridiculous. Of course, a foot is not a hand. 
but that doesn't mean it's not important. That doesn't mean that it can claim not to be a part of our body. In this analogy, the foot and the ear are wallowing in their self-pity. They are jealous of the more prominent parts. They are jealous of the seemingly more glorious members, and so they throw themselves a pity party. Let me be clear. In this, they are not being humble. Sometimes we are tempted to think that when people say negative things about themselves, they are being humble. We say, oh, they're, they're, they must be very humble. No, that's not humility. That's self-pity. What they're really saying is, I'm not important, but I wish I was. They're an Eeyore. You know, good old Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. He's always sitting there, depressed and sad, and doing what? Complaining. He's going around, sadly, just wallowing in his self-pity. He goes around saying, It's not much of a tale, but I'm sort of attached to it. Eeyore, just wallowing in his self-pity. That's not humility. Humility is not saying you're worthless and you have no value. Humility is recognizing your value as assessed by God. It's recognizing that all your gifts and all your worth come from God alone. And that he should get the glory. What the foot and the ear are doing in this scenario is false humility. They're complaining that they have nothing to offer and that their gifts are not good. In essence, they are blaming God for making them the way that he did. They're focused on themselves. It's self-pitying jealousy. The church member they represent complains that their spiritual gift isn't important, that what they do in the church isn't important, but they're resentful to God because God didn't give them one of the good gifts. I wish God gave me one of the cool gifts, one of the cool ones that would have done what? If they're honest, one of the cool ones that would have given me some of the glory. If the foot and ear are really honest, they just want the glory. And Paul says that's not how it works. Just because you in your self-pitying jealousy think that your gift is not important, that doesn't mean you're right. God made us each unique with a specific gift that contributes to the health of the whole body of Christ. Paul says in verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? What kind of human would we be if we were one humongous eye? That's not a person, that's a monster. And that monster wouldn't be able to smell anything. You see, if we all have the exact same gifts, then we'd be missing something. If we all had the most showy gifts, even if we were all teachers, but we had no helpers, no encouragers, no administrators, no hospitable members, the church would be lacking. And that's Paul's point. If we had all the exact same gifts and we were exactly the same, the church wouldn't function correctly. 
God made you a part of the body, and God made you exactly the way you are, giving you the uh, specific gift, place you here in this specific place at this specific time for a specific reason. This is what Paul says in verse 18. Paul writes, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. And let's step back. Let's think about that. Do you realize that God in his sovereignty in moving about all of human history from the beginning of time, he chose you to be here, literally here, listening to me now. He chose you to be here with your specific gift in this specific church on this specific day for a specific reason. God didn't make a mistake by giving you your gift and placing you here. It's like this thing my mom used to tell me. Anytime I got into conflict with my brother or my sister, and believe me, that happened a lot, she would remind me, God made you who you are and placed you in this family for a reason. She would say, God gave me God gave me and your dad as your parents for a reason. God gave you your sister for a reason. God gave you your brother for a reason. He placed you here with them to teach you something. And so Paul says to these Corinthian believers, God made you your spiritual, with your spiritual gifting for a specific reason. And that gift is important to the body of Christ, no matter if you think it's illustrious or not. And now I'm saying to you, God gave us each other, placed us together as a church family for a reason. God gave you your spiritual gift for SFBC at this current time for a reason. Your spiritual gift is important to the functionality of the church. He has kept older members, brought new members, brought old members back, all for a reason. But your importance doesn't come from you. It comes from God. God chose you to be a part of his body and given you a specific gift to use. And so you're not important because God needs you. You're important because God chose you. And he, because he chose you, he baptized you into his spirit and made you one with him. So our worth doesn't come from what we have to offer God in our natural abilities. Our worth comes from the fact that we are now one with him. The abilities he gave us, we now use for his glory in the building up of the rest of his body. Each member of the body is only as good as its connection to the mind of the body. And the mind of the body is Christ. Christ is the head. He is the mind. He is what controls the body. Does your foot have a mind of its own? Hopefully not. Your mind calls the shots. And your body does what it's told. Your head tells your body to do this and to do that. When a body no longer has a mind or spirit, it becomes a corpse. 
When the church no longer has the mind or spirit of Christ, it becomes a community center. We are only united together when we are first connected to Christ, the head. And so that's the first dangerous division. That's the first side of the coin, self-pitying jealousy. The other side of the coin is self-aggrandizing pride. We see that in verses 21 to 25. Let's read verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. This side of the coin is a member's self-aggrandizing pride. This is a member who thinks so much of themselves and their gifting that they look down on others. They are so full of themselves that they don't, they don't think they need any of the other members. So Paul continues his analogy. The eye is saying to the hand, I have no need of you. And the head to the feet, I have no need of you. In this part of the analogy, the members, they have an overinflated assessment of their own, own importance. They have an overinflated assessment of their own importance. They are arrogant. They see themselves as more important and more necessary, and all the others are second rate. They use their place of prominence as a means to lord it over the other members. Now, this scenario sounds kind of silly when it's an eye talking to a hand. But if we think very honestly and we th- think really hard, do we do this in our church? Do we do this at San Francisco Bible Church? And I would say, if we're honest, yes, we do. If I'm honest, yes, I do. Now, I may not say it so blatantly, but it's easier. It's easier for me to recognize the gifts that are public. And I forget about the gifts that are in the background. And I think if we're honest, our, ten, our church tends to overemphasize the gift of teaching. If you're a teacher or a preacher, you're put on a pedestal. Now, let me be clear. I'm not calling anyone out specifically. I have no one in mind right now. But I'm giving you examples of the gifts that I think we tend to notice more. It's more natural for us to give praise to our public speakers. But maybe that's not you. Think for yourself then. Which of those spiritual gifts, which of the spiritual gifts do do you think you tend to notice more? Which ones do you tend to give praise and thanks more than others? Or maybe the harder question is, do you have a self-aggrandizing view of your own ministry? This is a temptation in any church, in any ministry, that we are so involved in our specific ministry that it becomes the lens through which we view the whole church. We think, my ministry is so important, it should be the metric by which we judge everything else. I do this very important ministry, but you don't. So there must be something wrong with you. And now this is me too. 
To be very honest, this is me too. I can be tempted to say that children's ministry is so important that if you're not involved, why? Why not? This is a very important ministry. Why would you go serve that ministry when you can serve in my ministry? That's the temptation. This is, we start to have this self-aggrandizing view of our own ministry, of our own worth, of our own spiritual gifts. But in reality, Paul is trying to tell us our ministries are not rivals. We are not rivals. We are not competitors. To expand that from SNBC to, to, to San Francisco and probably to the entire globe, our local churches are not competitors. We are all a part of the same body. We shouldn't be against one another because we have the same goal. We shouldn't fight because we're connected to the same head. But we fight because we're too focused on our own will, not God's will. And that makes us ask the hard questions. Do I have an overinflated view of my own ministry? of myself? Am I becoming puffed up in my view of self? Now, these are the hard questions that pastors and preachers especially have to ask themselves because we have the calling, desire, gifting to shepherd and teach the church. But that means the temptation is always there every week. The temptation is for us to have an overinflated view of ourselves. The temptation is to say that I want to be a good teacher for my own glory. And that's for us to lay down, to think about, to keep in check, for us to confess, to make sure that we're giving God's glory when we open the word and when we preach or when you teach Sunday school, that God gets the glory. Because it should be our goal, no matter what your spiritual gift is, for us to get out of the way and give God his due glory. I tell you all that because it's what I struggle with too. I tell you this because Paul is pointing the finger right at me as well. This is a verse that convicts me and is reorienting my perspective. And it's Paul's word here that helped me to look and have eyes to see the ministries and the gifts that I don't normally recognize or give thanks for or praise. Paul continues the body analogy, reminding the Corinthians that the parts that we incorrectly view as weaker, less honorable, or unpresentable are actually very important. And they may even require more attention and care than the prominent parts. So where do we see this applying to the local church? There's a lot of different ways, but for me, I think the trash cans. And what do I mean by the trash cans? The question is, who takes out the trash cans? Who cleans up the messes that we leave? Now, I'm sure that there are a lot of people who take out the trash cans throughout the whole year, but when this, when this passage came up, I was thinking about, I couldn't help but think about day camp. At day camp, there are a lot of prominent positions, quote-unquote. The ones that we tend to focus on, group leaders, teachers, workshop leaders. But one that always filled my heart with joy and things, honestly, when I saw it, were the trash cans. 
Basically, every day at day camp, without me asking, in between the hustle and bustle of day camp, I would catch a glimpse of George Hong and my dad walking in the hallways with bags and bags of trash, taking them down to the garage to throw them away. They would be happily making conversation, quietly serving our day camp. And that may seem small, to, to, but to me, it was huge. Because to be honest, I had no plan for regularly emptying the trash cans. I hadn't assigned that role. I, haven't even, I hadn't even thought about that role when I was planning. Which probably would have meant that it would have been me staying late after everyone left taking out the trash. And yet, unasked, here were these two faithful men quietly doing the dirty, thankless job. Or think about the week to week. I think of Tony and now Johnny walking around the building late at night, cleaning our building, making sure that our ministries have a clean room to use. Now, this is just a glimpse of some of those gifts working in the background. There may be a ton of them that I don't even know about. There may be some that are coming to your mind right now. Paul is confronting these Corinthians and us along with them. You guys are over here fighting about which spiritual gift is best, but what you realize is the answer is none. You are all equally a part of of Christ and the body of Christ. Therefore, no one is better than the other. No gift is better than the other. No gifting, no combination of gifting is better than another. So cut it out. Stop wallowing in your self-pity because you don't have a showy gift. Don't be prideful no matter what your gift is, even if it is showy. Appreciate one another, even the ones that we often overlook. Appreciate them, recognize them, and see every member as important and necessary. Why? Because that is how God sees them. So the first truth is that we are, as a church, we are united, we stand. And secondly, divided, we fall. And that leads us to our third truth that combats division. Together, we live in verse 26. Let's read that. Verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. As a body of Christ, we live together as one body. And when one part of the body is hurting, we all hurt. We understand this. When we get injured, when you get hurt, when you injure a part of your body, your whole body feels it. Your whole body is affected. When you get hurt, other parts of your body may have to compensate for it. This especially happens when we injure a part of our body that we take for granted, that we don't realize we use every day. We've We've all had this happen, where you hurt a part of your body and you're like, oh man, I didn't realize I use this arm so much or use this back muscle so much. I didn't realize I turned my neck this much. I didn't realize I couldn't do this without this body part working correctly. You think, oh man, I never really feel my ears, but now that it is throbbing, it really hurts. And so it is with our church. 
when one of us goes through a trial, we all go through it. When one of us is hurting, when one of us is mourning, we all mourn. On the flip side, when one of us has a praise or a prayer request answered, we all rejoice. This is our calling as a local church. We need to live life together, walk together. We need to be for one another, and we need to be there for one another. But if you're here, and you're not yet a Christian, and you're thinking, what is all this about being unified in the church, being a part of Christ's body? But you want to be a part of this. And you're here, and you want to be a part of this united family, and you think, what do I have to do? The answer is, all you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, the things that you have done wrong, things that are against God, and that he died on the cross to pay for your sins, and he rose again. And if you do that, you join the body of Christ. You become a part of our family to walk life with us. To join with us, to be a part of us because you have joined Christ. You are one with him. And now you are one with us. And so it's my desire for San Francisco Bible Church this morning as we go that we would be a healthy church family that we would take to heart Paul's three truths to combat division in our church, that we remember as a family, united we stand, divided we fall, and together we live. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for joining us to yourself, making us individually, one with you through the saving work of the cross, that you died on the cross for our sins and rose again. And because of that, you joined us to yourself, and that is what joins us together. That's what makes us a church family. And so I pray that we would live in light of that this week, this year, as we go that we would live with one another, support each other, rejoice together, mourn together, care for one another, encourage one another, build each other up, not tear each other down. And I pray that we would do so out of worship to you. I pray that we would recognize and see the gifts that each of us have differently. But thank God that they are here. Thank God for making them the way that they are, making us the way that we are for your glory, not for our own. And so I lift this time to you uh, in worship. May we continue worshiping as we sing and as we go, as we fellowship together as a family. In Jesus' name, amen.